Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So how many of you are Star Trek fans? Some of you, sort of. I'm more of a Star Wars fan. But the 1982 movie came out called The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan. It's very interesting because it's a title of a movie that has the word wrath in it. And wrath is not a word that we hear often. Um, we're not familiar with the word wrath, at least our culture is. I mean, in the church we are. Maybe you read John Steinbeck's famous novel, The Grapes of Wrath. It's about a, a family, the Jode family. They travel from the Dust Bowl of um, Oklahoma. They go to California. And um, basically it's, it's about the Great Depression and how they're crushed in the wine press of the wrath of the Great Depression. And so it comes from the battle hymn of the Republic, the Grapes of Wrath. But really it comes from Revelation chapter 14. So when we think about wrath in our culture, not the church culture, but the culture in general, wrath is a term that we aren't that familiar with, our culturism. Maybe you've heard the famous saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, okay? You don't want to be in the wake of a wrath, of the wrath of a woman who's been, who's been jilted or burned. So, what is wrath? Now, when humans vent their wrath, it's often childish, it's often petty, it's often out of control, it springs from jealousy, and it can be random. Okay, that's when humans exercise wrath. But what about God? Does God have the right to display wrath? I'm going to leave that hanging for you when we talk about God's wrath. But before we talk about God's wrath, we're going to look at the wrath of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And so we can title tonight, Hell Hath No Fury Like a King, a king Scorned. Okay? So if you remember from last week, those of you that were here, Daniel interpreted the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember, there were parts of the dream... The head was gold, and it represented Nebuchadnezzar, the gold head. And then there was the different parts of the body that represented the nations that came afterwards. But then the thing about the dream was this stone, not made by human hands, came and crushed. And we said that that stone represented Jesus as the cornerstone that would come and crush all the kingdoms and set up his eventual eternal kingdom as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the question you have to think about is how does... The king respond to the dream. We talked briefly about it last week, so we're just going to kind of jump into the end of chapter 2. Daniel has interpreted the dream. Remember the king was pretty much irrational. He, he asked his astrologers to come in and say, interpret my dream for me, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream is, and if you don't, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb. And so um, Daniel comes in and he has wisdom and he's able to interpret the dream. And so he tells him the dream. So let's pick up in verse 46 of chapter 2. Because it sets the stage for chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Notice paid homage to Daniel. And commanded an offering and incense be offered up to him. 
The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now, one of the things we're going to see about Nebuchadnezzar is, is this a true spiritual transformation? And I'm going to say no based upon chapter 3. Now, it looks like maybe he's seen the light. What has he confessed? Your God is the God of Israel. You know, your God is the true God. Now, who does he worship? He pays homage to Daniel. He bows down and worships Daniel. And why does he worship Daniel? Because Daniel interpreted the dream. So he's paying homage to Daniel, and he does not say, your God is my God. That's a big difference. There's a lot of people that may look at Jesus from a distance and say, I admire him, or I, I like your religion. It, it seems good for you. But they haven't come to that point where they personally have bowed the knee, not to another person, but bowed the knee to King Jesus and said, like Thomas, remember what Thomas said? <clears throat> my Lord and my God, when Jesus revealed the nail piercings. The Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's experienced some type of conviction. Here's the scary thing about it. He experiences conviction without conversion. Hmm. He was impressed. He maybe even had goosebumps. He had a religious experience, but there is no spiritual change in his life. Hey, Jennifer. Thanks, So let me give you a illustration here. This comes from John Owen, the great Puritan of old. He gives an illustration, and... It's, it's like this. John Owen says, it's like a man, I'm just going to read it so I make sure I, I, I quote, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he says, it's like a man who's very determined to take a journey. And this man gets caught in a huge thunderstorm. And he tries to take immediate shelter. And so he goes into a house and he temporarily waits for the thunderstorm to pass. And once it passes, he gets back out on the road and he continues on his journey. And what he says is, this is like a man who's in bondage to sin. They're determined on their path of lust, of sin. They're determined to go their own way. But when they hear the gospel, and they hear about hell, and they hear about judgment, and they, they hear the thunder and lightning of God's power and presence, they kind of run into the house to kind of avoid the, the thunderstorm, if you will. They, they get foxhole religion. I promise, you know, God, next time, if you get me out of this, I'll... And then once it passes, like the thunderstorm... They're back on the road to sin, and there's no real change. And that's what's happening here to the king. He's seen the workings of God through interpretation of dream. He's been under conviction, and he may have even had a religious experience, but he's not had a true gospel transformation where his heart has been changed and he's worshiping the God of Israel. And you'll, you'll say, well, how do you know that? Well, let's read chapter 3. <laughs> okay, so it'll be very clear as we move into chapter 3. So let's read chapter 3, 
We're going to read verses, and again, these are long chapters that are long narrative passages. So we're going to read them in chunks, and then we're going to go back and kind of work through them. So let's just read chapter 3, 1 through 7. Everybody there? All right. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the images that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, now here's what should have been the shocking thing as you go into chapter 3 and what we just looked at in chapter 2. As you read the end of chapter 2 and you see the supposed change in the king, you are shocked at the abrupt beginning of chapter 3 with this image of gold. What, what, did, what did Daniel just tell him? You are the head of gold that's going to be destroyed. What does King Nebuchadnezzar do? I'm going to set up a gold image. So, what does he do? He erects a golden image to ensure the dream won't come true. There's no coincidence that it's made of gold. Now, this colossal statue, I know you don't know cubits, Okay, who, who, anybody want to Google cubits to inches? No, I'll give you the dimensions. It's 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. 90 feet. It's like 10 basketball goals. That's, that's, that's high. Made of pure gold in the image of himself. Okay, now I, I emphasized a word that's repeated, but did you notice the word that was repeated? I think it shows up seven times. It's the word set up. The king set up. The king set up. The king set up. He's setting up an altar to be worshipped. And he's going to make sure the dream doesn't come true. Because he wants to control the future. Daniel has just told him, this stone's going to come destroy you. Or another nation's going to come and destroy you, the, the Medo-Persians. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I'm going to prevent that from happening. I'm going to make a bigger statue of gold that's so big that nobody can come destroy it. And then what did we look at in chapter 2? So go back and read 2.21. What did we see last week that Daniel said? Who sets up? Why is that word set up? Look at chapter 2, verse 21. This is God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and does what? Sets up kings. Okay. Who sets up who? God sets up kings, but Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up his own kingdom, his own idol. So in an act of rebellion, he has everybody come to the plain of Dura. Now, 
why the plain of Dura, otherwise known as the plain of Shinar, otherwise known as the location of the Tower of Babel. Who's he bringing? Notice the language. What does he tell? He says, look at verse 4. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Peoples, nations, and languages. Everybody. All languages, tribes, and peoples. You will come to this spot and you will worship. Now, remember, Babel and Babylon are the same place. What did the people do back in Genesis 11? They all gathered in one place. And they had what? One language. God scattered them. And they tried to, what did they do at the, what did they do at the Tower of Babel? What was, what were they doing at the Tower of Babel? They're erecting a monument to themselves so that they could worship themselves. What's King Nebuchadnezzar doing here in the same exact spot? Instead of the Tower of Babel, it's the Tower of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's calling like in the Tower of Babel, all the nations to come and bow down in this one spot. Now, why do you think he's bringing all these nations and people together? He's doing this, number one, because in all these people coming together, they represent the diversity of his kingdom, and he wants to unite everyone under a one-world totalitarian rule and have, quote-unquote, Babel reincarnated, if you will. I want the whole world to come at this one spot and worship the image of me. Because I'm the king, and I've set up this monument to myself. Now, why is it such a huge monument? Why, why is it important? You've seen this in history. It is a cultural emblem, a political emblem of tyranny, of totalitarianism. What have you seen in, in nations in the, in the recent past, past hundred years, that's a symbol that's tried to unite people under a totalitarian rule to try to control people. Can you think of the Nazi swastika mm -hmm. as an emblem that everybody rallies around that <clears throat> represents Hitler and totalitarianism? Saddam Hussein had statues all over Statues all over the place, the hammer and the sickle of communism. So when you want to dominate people and you want to have them live in fear, and you want to quote-unquote unite them under a totalitarian rule, oftentimes kings and dictators would use a unifying image and gather everybody to focus on that one thing. And it's an image of him. So, come to the 90-foot-tall golden image of Nebuchadnezzar and bow down and worship. So let's ask the question, what is the greatest sin in all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? You could quibble with me on this, and I'm okay with that, but I would say, let's say one, one of the greatest, idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is condemned more than any other sin because it goes right to the heart of worship, right to the heart of your allegiance. What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I'm going to share with you a passage in Romans. And I want you to look at the language that Paul uses when he talks about idolatry. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Key word there. 
exchanged the glory of God or glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. Therefore God gave them up in their lust of their heart to impurity, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Okay, I'm going to go to the board here. And I'm sorry for people on Facebook Live. You're just going to have to... So what's the key? What's the key word? They what? Exchanged. And this passage of scripture says they exchanged two things. What did they exchange? They exchanged the glory of God and the truth of God. So at its heart, idolatry is basically saying, I don't want the glory of God. And I don't want the truth of God, so I'm going to trade those things in for something else. I'm going to exchange. What happens when you exchange something? When you get a gift at Christmas time and you go to the store and you, what do you do? You go to the returns counter and you make an exchange because you don't want it. My aunt got me this sweater and I got the receipt and I really don't want it, so let me go. Can I do an even exchange? You know, back in the day. So idolatry is exchanging God's glory and God's truth. Or created things. And 1 John 5.21 says this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, those of you that are in my men's study are going to have to just listen to this again. But a few weeks ago we went through this, and maybe we need to hear it twice. But let's move out of Daniel for just a moment, and let's move to Isaiah chapter 44. So, so we'll come back to Daniel. But I want to take a quick detour on idolatry. Because this is really what the heart of this passage is, is idolatry. So go back to Isaiah 44. And in Isaiah 44, really from chapter 40 through 46-ish, God is putting all the false gods on trial. He's putting all the idols on trial. He's kind of parading the false gods out. He's kind of bringing them out in the courtroom. And and basically it's kind of funny because God's like, present your case, you piece of wood. Talk. And, and like, of course, they're not doing anything. So in, in, in Isaiah chapter 44, 6 through 20, you really see the futility of idolatry. So it's graphic imagery here of what idolatry does. And so the ESV, actually, do you guys have an uninspired an, 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 um, heading above chapter, I mean, chapter 44, verse 9? Does anybody, does your Bible say? Mine says the folly of idolatry. Does anybody have something that says something like that? The foolishness of idolatry? Or? Israel, the Lord's chosen. Yeah, but, uh, but before verse 9. Oh, before verse 9. To say something like the foolishness or the folly of, folly of, idolatry. of idolatry. Yeah. Okay, so let's read this. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails, he drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches out a line, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars. 
and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on his coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Okay, let's just talk about this for a moment. Verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing. That Hebrew word there means chaotic. Idolatry is chaos. There's no order to it. And notice what we do with idols. We delight in it. You want it. Your heart longs for that idol. You want to treasure it. You want to grasp it. You want that thing to give you meaning, to give you purpose, to give you satisfaction, and you delight in it. And so here's what happens. When your heart delights in idolatry, they only confuse you. It brings you confusion. Now, if you go if you go like the verses 12 through 17, Isaiah goes into great detail to show how excruciatingly painful it is to make an idol. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to chop down a tree, and I'm going to, half of it I'm going to use for fuel, and half of it I'm going to use for cooking, and the other half I'm going to use, and I'm going to, I'm going to whittle down this little figurine, and I'm going to put it in my house, and I'm going to make it into an image of a man, and I'm going to put it in my house, and I'm going to, I'm going to worship this idol. And I'm going to be sweating, and, and then um, the silversmith, was it the smoke silversmith that comes out, or was it the, um, what is iron. it, the iron, iron smith? The iron smith comes out, the carpenter. One of the greatest instruments of idolatry is the mirror. I think John Piper said this, there will be no mirrors in heaven. You don't want to look at yourself. You're only going to want to look at Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking at yourself in the mirror. You want to make sure you look good before you head out to the day. So, metaphorically speaking, one of the greatest dangers of idolatry is we tend to want everything to focus on me. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing here? I'm making an idol of myself. Because I don't want this dream to come true. And if I can control the situation and at least be in control and have everybody come down and bow down and worship this thing, then I will be in control and I will be the one on the throne. I will be in charge. And what does God say about this? 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6. We know that an idol, quote, has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Newsflash. We exist for God's glory, not the other way around. God does not exist for our glory. We exist for His 
glory. And notice what he does with this idol. He creates this little man. I mean, look at, I mean, verse, um, where is it? At the end of verse 13, he shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in his house. And then notice what he says there in verse 17. The rest of the, the wood he makes into a god, his idol, he falls down and worships it. He prays to it. And what does he say? Deliver me, for you are my God. What is he ultimately asking this little piece of wood to do? Save me. Deliver me. Deliver me from what? Who knows? My circumstances, my health, my problems. I've told you guys this story before. Um, when I went to India, one of the t many times I've been to India, I went to a hardware store. And don't think of Home Depot or Lowe's. Think of a little hut about half the size of this. And there was a guy there, and um, we started engaging him. He knew a little bit of English. And he had all these pictures of gods on his behind the cash register. And I just said, tell me about your gods. Okay, this god was the god of fertility. This god was the god of health. This god was the god of his store. This god was the god of his... And then he had Jesus up there. Like one of those like, like weird Jesus pictures with like, you know. And I said, well, tell me, like, why is Jesus up here? Well, I, I put Jesus up there just because he's a good teacher. And so he was going through all these different gods. And I said, well, and I just asked him the question. I said, do you live in fear that maybe you haven't done enough to please these gods and something's going to go wrong? Oh, yes, live in fear all the time. Always living in fear. And so this man here in Isaiah is living in fear and he looks at this thing in his hand, this thing he's fashioned. Remember, he, he went and he chopped down the tree. He probably dragged the tree and sweated and brought it in there and chopped it down and half of it he used for wood to keep his house warm. The other half he used to bake bread and then whatever's left over he whittles down into this little man. He brings the man into his, to his house. He bows down to it and he looks at this thing in his hand and says, save me. You're my source of security. Now, why is he doing this? Well, verses 18 and 20 tells us why he's doing this. When your heart delights in idols, they only blind you. There's a blindness that comes about. Do you see there in verse 18? They know not. They do not know. They do not discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. So literally, that word, um, he has shut their eyes, literally means their eyes have been plastered over. There's a, blindness that's, there's a blindness of eyes and a deadness of heart that happens when you give into idolatry. You're, you're, you're blinded to reality. And then in verse 19, it says, no, he doesn't really understand what he's doing. No one considers, nor there is knowledge or discernment. He, he doesn't realize... This makes no sense. Half of it I burn in the fire. I also bake bread on his coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? I mean, he's so blinded to it. But then verse 20 shows you ultimately what idolatry does. What is the graphic imagery in verse 20? He feeds on ashes. Now, look at that, think of that imagery. What are ashes? the remains of burning this wood. So, so think about dark ashes in your mouth and you're 
filling your face with ashes, trying to give you sustenance. What's the picture there? It's foolish. It's not satisfying. It's weird. (laughs) There's no sustenance in ashes. It's dead. Now, in the Bible, there's often metaphors of tasting the true source of joy, and that would be the Lord. So think about Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You really should be bowing down to the Lord and saying, save me. Not feeding on ashes, but tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And then Jesus in John 6, 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, an idol has no power to change the heart to love and worship Jesus that only darkens, blinds, and deceives the heart. But there's one final thing. And I want you to know, like, it's bad enough that he's, he's eating ashes. But I want you to show you the, the, the bondage, the bondage of idolatry. It cannot save. Notice what it says there, the very last thing. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself. This, this idol cannot save you. Is there not a lie in my right hand? I'm grabbing so hard onto this idol, no one's going to pry it out of my hand. And if they come and try to pry it out of my hand, I'm going to hold on even tighter because this has given me security. And what does Isaiah say that thing in your hand is? It's a lie. What they do? They exchange the glory of God for, or they exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's an abomination. It's a lie. It, it's, it's not anything. But my goodness, do we hold on to idols? Yes, Cindy. So this passage in Isaiah, especially that last little chunk down to 20, reminds me so much of Romans 1. Yeah. It's, they're it's they're mirror just, images. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together. <laughs> so I want to just take a detour because I, this is like one of the most graphic pictures in the Old Testament of really what idolatry does to a person. Like it shows you the foolishness of what it deludes you. It... It doesn't have any power. It, it just, it, it's, it's insane what idolatry does to you. Now, let's get back to Nebuchadnezzar. The famous or infamous philosopher Nietzsche, remember he said God is dead. He also said this, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? If there is a God, I need to be that God. I don't believe there's a God but if there is one, I need to be him. Now that's some scary statements, isn't it? That's, that could easily have been the words of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Oh, Daniel, thank you for interpreting my dream. I'm going to bow down and pay homage to you because your God's so awesome. He gave me the answer to my dream about this golden head that's going to be destroyed. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. I'm going to try to not make that dream come true by erecting this 90-foot-tall statue of myself for everybody to come down, bow down at me. No questions asked. I'm demanding worship of everybody in the kingdom. No questions asked. Isaiah 46, another passage from Isaiah Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into gold 
makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands up there. It cannot move from its place if one cries to it. It does not answer or save him from his trouble. Same thing. You set up a gold statue, and you cry out to it to save you. What's the gold statue going to do? It's just going to sit there because it's not the living God. Now, all these instruments, let's go back to Daniel. When you go back and you study those instruments that are used, the Hebrew terminology, this is just a side note, just an interesting side note. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters a little bit. You, none of these are used in the worship of Israel. These are pagan instruments and pagan music. So when the pagan band begins to play, <laughs> when the band begins to play, when the marching band starts playing, or whatever the, the, the pagan music starts, what are you supposed to do? You bow down, no questions asked. And if you don't bow down, what do you face? You face the wrath. Not the wrath of Khan, but the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. But what's the wrath? The fiery furnace. And that's pretty extreme, isn't it? If you don't bow down, I'm throwing you into a fiery furnace. And so what do the people do? Well, we're back to Daniel now. Verse 7, at the end of the verse 7, when the music played, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, no questions asked. They just, I mean, it almost reminds you a little bit, for lack of a better term, it reminds you a little bit of COVID <laughs> and just how people kind of blindly said, okay, they're going to tell me to do what? I'm going to, I'm just going to do it because I guess I'm supposed to do that. But there are three young, courageous Jewish boys that don't. Now remember, at this time, we're not exactly sure how old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. But remember from chapter 1, they're probably 15 or 16, so they're still younger younger men. Um, so let's keep reading. So let's, let's look at verse 8. Let's go through 8 through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of a horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Okay. So these men come forward and they, they maliciously accused the boys. And it's interesting, that word maliciously accused in the Hebrew means, it literally means they devoured them. Like they were out for blood. They ate them for lunch. They tore them into pieces with their slanderous words. So this is the epitome of false worship on a massive scale. From the king down to all the people, they're mindlessly bowing down in pagan idolatry to a mere statue in fear of being thrown into a fiery furnace. And so the key leadership, the prefects, the counselors are coming and they're maligning these three boys. And um, these three lonely boys don't bow the knee. They stand in stark contrast to everybody around them. Now, at this point, you may say, well, where's Daniel? Where's Daniel during all this? 
We don't know, but here's what most scholars believe. He was probably sent out on a mission by the king to the outer parts of the empire at this time and wasn't there for this dedication. Daniel's not mentioned. We know from chapter 2 he was set as a prefect over, so it could have been that Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, I got some emissary business, I got some, you're an ambassador, I, I, I need to send you so, to the far part of the empire to do some work. But, beside the point, how does this megalomaniac, insecure, arrogant king respond to the defiance of these three impertinent teenagers? Is he going to take it well? Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay, so verse 13, he's furious with rage. But look at the arrogance in verse 16. Did you see it? I'm, not, I'm sorry, not verse 16, at the end of verse 15. That's a typo. Who is the God, lowercase, who will deliver you out of my hands? I've set up this golden statue. I'm in charge. I'm the one who sets up and tears down. I'm the one who has the power to throw you in the fiery furnace. Who do you boys think you are? Is there any quote-unquote God that's going to come save you out of my hands? Well, doesn't he remember that there is a God in heaven that sets up and tears down kings and, as a matter of fact, put him in leadership? There is the living God. And that living God showed him in a dream that his kingdom is going to come to an end and he might just be wiped off the map. Has he been changed? Back a few verses ago, bows down to Daniel, your God's cool. You got a great God. He answered my dream. Now he's burning with rage and he says, who's going to deliver you out of my hand? I'm the one who's in charge here. I, me, my. I'm the one in charge. Who is God? Now, that's, that reminds me a lot of what Goliath said when he was faced with David. Blasphemies coming out of his mouth. Wrath, blasphemy, idolatry, arrogance. And it gets worse than this. Because let's see what, what goes on as we move through this passage. Let's, let's, look at verses, let's look at verse 16, 17, and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need, I love this, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, this is amazing what we see in these three men. So let's explore some aspects of true worship by these young men. And the first thing, and I've seen this over the years, especially when I was a youth pastor, the first thing is not compromising is sometimes very lonely. Think about how lonely it would have been for those three boys to stand out and not bow down. 
Everybody's doing it. Peer pressure galore. And not just peer pressure like they're not going to talk to you in the lunchroom. It's, you'll be throwing the fiery furnace peer pressure. Okay? I've seen some youth. I, I'm thinking I, I actually talked with him this week. Um, I talked to him a lot. He's not a youth anymore. He's a doctoral PhD student um, in, in, in pastoral ministry. But back in the day when I was his youth pastor, he struggled in high school because he lived for Christ and was a, was a godly young man in high school and did not have a lot of friends and felt lonely at times because he stood up for Jesus. And I've had a few young men and women over the years that when they didn't play the game of peer pressure in high school and live for Christ, it was kind of a lonely time. And it can be like that for adults too. So I'm not going to be, I'm not going to paint a rose-colored picture and say, hey, when you stand up for Jesus, it's all great. Sometimes it can be lonely. Now, these three men were together, but it can be lonely when you when you don't compromise. When you're when you're standing up for Christ, it can be lonely. Okay, second thing about these men, they were determined to obey God rather than man. I mean, I love what they said. I mean, think about the audacity. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We really don't need to give an answer. It's not really none of your business whether we bow down to you or not. You're just a king. You're a mere man. We serve the living God of Israel. Now, remember when Peter and John were brought before the authorities? Remember the authorities told them in the book of Acts, you shouldn't, you cannot preach the name of Jesus anymore. If you do that, we're going to arrest you, we're going to beat you, we're going to throw you in jail. And what did Peter say? Okay, I guess we'll stop talking about Jesus. We'll love our neighbors and just kind of be quiet and not do anything. What do they say? Acts 5.29. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to obey God. We're going to worship God. We're not going to deal with you. Okay, third, they trusted in the powerful ability of God to save them. Notice what they say in verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. God is powerful. You may think you're the one in charge, King Nebuchadnezzar, but my God is powerful, and he can deliver us. And I'm trusting in our sovereign God. But here's the most amazing thing about this whole passage of Scripture. Verse 18 is probably one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible. Fourth, they trusted in the sovereignty of God regardless of the outcome. What is verse 18? Verse 18 is probably one of the most startling verses in the Old Testament. What does verse 18 say? But if not... But if not, if not what? God doesn't deliver us. If we burn in this fire and God somehow allows us or ordains us to die, we're still not going to bow down. We're still not going to serve this golden image that you've set up. Talk about a belief in God's sovereignty. It's one thing to say you believe in God's sovereignty. It's another thing to live it out. Because what does it mean? If you believe in God's sovereignty, that means that no matter what happens, yeah, 
it doesn't mean that God may always work things out the way you want them to work out. Job 13, 15, what does Job say? Though he slay me, I will still hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. What did Jesus say when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to experience the wrath of the cross, but not my will be done, but yours. So let's talk about God's sovereignty for a moment. Is God obligated to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Keyword being obligated. No. No. Do they merit salvation by being faithful? No, not really. Not really. Okay. Yeah. Can God save them? Yes. We know God does save them. Let's just say we don't know the rest of the story. Can God save them? Does God have the right not to save them? Is God still good if he doesn't save them? Yes. Okay. Now, yeah. Let's talk about God's... Yeah, go ahead. You guys can interrupt me anytime you want. So, the other thing that I find interesting is if you just read 17, if you didn't go on to 18, it sounds real close to almost a prosperity gospel. I mean, because it says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Yep. But even if he doesn't. Yep. I mean, then they, they just turn it completely yeah. on its head at that point. Yeah, if you just had verse 17, name it and claim it, he's going to do it. No questions asked. Let's just look at some verses about God's sovereignty for a moment here. So, Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You may have your own plans and purposes, but whose plan and purpose is ultimately going to stand? God. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. My favorite verse from the Old Testament, one of them, Job 42, 2. I, this is talking about God here. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Even if that purpose means for you to be in a fiery furnace, it's not going to be thwarted. It's like Abraham and I with Isaac. Yeah. And he's just like, son, he waited all the years. Yeah. You know, and then he's like, really? Now i got to kill my son? Yeah, i got to kill my son. And yeah. My took, you know. A lot of, yeah. Genesis 22. And, so. and that, I mean, because when you read, if you just had Abraham's story in the Old Testament, you wouldn't know this, but in Hebrews, he goes on to explain because Abraham trusted that God could do whatever he wanted. He could resurrect Isaac. He could do... Yeah, so look, so when I teach my Old Testament, when I, the old, old, old Old Testament class at CCU before they changed it, we had to do Genesis 22. Are you, guys, are you guys okay if we go there real quick? Because I'm going to show you in verse 5. So, this is kind of a very side note. Is it okay if we jump out of Daniel and go to Genesis 22 for a moment? Okay. So, this is where Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And there's a little clue that if you don't read, and, and what I do when I teach this is I teach about Hebrew narrative. You need to read very, very slowly and carefully because you will miss clues in the text. And then you need to also corroborate it with what the New Testament does to commentate back on the Old Testament. So go to Genesis 22 for just a moment. And go to verse 5. So Abraham knows, God told him to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his one and only son. That he'd waited years for. Okay. So look at the clue. When you guys tell me the clue clue you find in verse 5. We will worship 
Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will go over there. And the way the Hebrew says, We will worship and we will come again to you. So what is Abraham saying? He had the faith that he knew that God was going to... I'm going up that mountain with that boy, but I'm coming back down with that boy. Okay, now, that's a clue that you may just read Passover. Okay, and when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, when the writer of Hebrews is talking about this, in verses 20, let me think, it's Hebrews 11, 23, and 24. Let me double check. You guys don't necessarily need to turn there, but let me corroborate to get the right address here. No, it was verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I love it when the New Testament gives commentary back on an Old Testament passage, so you, you know what it's about. So you have the Genesis 22 account, you have that little clue there, and the writer of Hebrews reads back into it. So ultimately, what is Abraham saying? I'm trusting that... I'm going to do what God's calling me to do, but somehow I know that this, me and this boy are coming back down. Because even if I do kill him, God will raise him from the dead and bring him back down. Okay. I don't know how we got off on that. But let's go back to, um, where are we here? Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord does, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and all the depths. Isaiah 46.9-11. Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, not yet things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. Now, this is probably the one verse I go to that talks about the absolute sovereignty of God. Because notice what it says there. God declares the beginning from the end. Not just predicts. Is God a good predictor? I think I, think I can predict the outcome because I'm a pretty good predictor. No. God declares the beginning from the end. In other words, God not only knows it, but God purposes it to be so. So, God's counsel will stand. What? Not forcing like speed burning through a video like a... Yeah, it's not... Yeah, it's not just mere foresight where God sees, it's God, it's foreordaining. Yeah, it's foreordaining what comes to pass, not just foreseeing what comes to pass. And then Romans 8.28, I think this is probably the verse that you guys all know. We know that for, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, obviously Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hadn't read Paul, because Paul wasn't born yet. But that's basically what they're saying, isn't it? We know that God is going to work all things out for good and for his glory. Now, that may be us burning in the fiery furnace, but the one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to bow down. Yes, Dick, go ahead. Do you think, just throwing church back to Bush here, that these three men were familiar with Isaiah and the passage that begins in verse in chapter 43, verse uh, Two verses. 
Now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you Hold that thought because I have that verse coming on my next page. So you're, you're thinking you're thinking right, Dick. So that's not speculation. We'll actually come back to that, Isaiah 43. But yes, you are you are thinking the right way. So, and then the fifth thing we see about these boys is they really had a single-hearted devotion to worship God alone. What do they say? Verse 18, be it, but if not, if he doesn't save us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now, that was extreme boldness. And that, that, that requires grace in those moments. <coughs> Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is just a basic biblical principle. Whenever you're faced with a trial, with a struggle, with a temptation, what you need most in that moment is grace. God's grace. And we have confidence because of Jesus to ask for that grace and God will give us that help. Now, does that mean God takes us out of it? We'll talk about that in just a moment. All right, let's see the story unfold. So let's look at verse 19. Through 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I don't know how you did that. There was no dials back then. We'll just keep adding, adding more fuel. And he, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Okay. Well, you had thought the king was hot earlier, <laughs> this time he erupts with uncontrollable rage at their defiance and says I want this thing heated seven times more maximum capacity now we can't get into the psychology of King Nebuchadnezzar but something triggered him and it could have been nobody defies me or he could have remembered back in the back of his head, what if this dream does come true and there is a living God and I'm, I'm going to be toast? We, we don't know. 
One commentator has said this. I like what he said. When we do not stand up to our idols, we had better be prepared to experience their wrath. <laughs> when we don't stand up to our idols, we better be ex- prepared to experience their wrath. Because what will the idols want to do? They're going to want to consume us. They promise a lot, but in the end they consume. Matthew, what did Jesus say about priorities? Matthew 16, 25-26, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Now, there's been a lot of debate about the fourth person in the furnace. Who is this fourth person? Let me give you the two major views. Is this an angel? Or is this actually a pre-incarnate Christ? The text is not clear. It just, all you know, all we have to go by is what? Verse 25, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of fire. They are not heard. The appearance of the fourth is like a sons of the gods. Okay. We can only guess. I lean on the side, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about this because there's not enough information, but I lean on the side that this is Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ, there in the furnace, ministering to and helping these men. Or it could be an angel. Either way. The point is, God provides for them with a helper. Another, either angel or, or I take it to be Christ. The, the most important thing is that God shows his powerful ability and his absolute sovereignty to rescue these young men. Now, what Dick said earlier. Let's go to that passage of scripture in Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, your mind. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now here's the important thing about this situation. God did not remove them from the fiery furnace, but he was with them in the fiery furnace. So here's the principle of suffering. God may not always take you out of the suffering, but he does promise to be there with you right through the suffering. This passage of scripture doesn't say if you pass through the waters, or if, it says when. So God is sovereign and he may ordain for you to go through trials as a way to grow your faith, as a way to purify you for his sovereign pleasure and he promises his presence. Now sometimes you may not feel his presence, you may not know that he's there, but he's always there with you. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. That was a fiery trial, wasn't it? Literally, fiery trial for Shadrach. Right? Fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay. Dick, did you want to comment more? I know I know you, you gave the verse and then I, we came back to it, but did you want to comment on the verse and...
just can't help believe. But not believe. Or I can't help but to believe that they were familiar with this passage. Yeah. Uh, much in the same way that uh, Daniel was familiar with the passage of Jeremiah, Jeremiah. 70 years. Yep, he knew Jeremiah. And, uh, yeah, these boys knew their scriptures. Uh, they were. It's an amazing thing. Now, let's think Peter about... Peter also says in his passage, though, he says, though yet for a little while you may have under, undergo trials, these have come uh, so that your faith may be proved to be genuine. Be genuine, yeah. Yeah. And testing of your faith. It's important that we know that we're believing in the one true God, mm -hmm. not in some idol, yeah. God who will truly save us, and that we're not out there in left field somewhere, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, believing some, yeah, some nonsense. Some weird stuff. And so God brings trials into our life. That's one purpose for trials, yeah. is so that we can see that our faith is genuine, and we yeah. can know it's genuine, it's yeah. real, and weak. Yeah. Serve God who is going to keep his word. Yeah. Now, right, so the miracle is that there's a fourth man, or fourth, let's just say Christ, the <laughs> pre-incarnate Christ. But I love what happens. They come out and, and like, it's not like, no, notice the miracle here, okay? Yeah. The hair on their, this is the end of verse 27. The hair of their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Now, those of you that have been around a campfire or cooked like a grill, like someone like cooking on the grill, what do you smell like when you come in? You even smell like smoke. Okay, these dudes have been in a fiery furnace. They come out, not one hair singed, their cloaks are like perfect, and they don't even smell like smoke. And this was a hot enough fire that it burned the people. Yeah, burned the people to win it. So God's like, okay, I'm going to really amplify this miracle so that there's no mistaking that this is from the hand of the Lord. Yeah. I think you also see throughout this the callousness, and historically, the callousness of Nebuchadnezzar when, uh, you know, he, his great men, um, they get burned up, and his first thing is, oh, wow, look at that. And, and, well, and that's what we're going to, that, that leads us to our next, our next point here. Now, will this be when the king finally has a transformation? Will he finally surrender his life to the living God and give up being in charge of his life? Will he see this miracle and repent in humility? Not really. Okay, let's, let's read and see what the king does. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn from limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, I think he blesses God and is amazed by the miracle. 
But do we ever see any evidence here that he claims God to be his own God? It's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the same way it was the God of Daniel. He's moved again. Wow, I had a dream interpreted. Wow, these guys came out not smelling like smoke and not burned. He's impressed, but he doesn't worship. So here's the thing about King Nebuchadnezzar. You can be impressed with Jesus, but not bow the knee to King Jesus. A lot of people do. There's more books on Jesus than any other books that are out there. More movies, more documentaries, more magazine articles, you know, more things. There's a lot of people that are impressed with Jesus, but they don't bow the knee to him. You can admire Jesus as a great teacher, a holy man, or you can even have cognitive head knowledge that he died on the cross, but that is not saving faith. So this is kind of a token display of religion that Nebuchadnezzar, he, he knows something miraculous has happened. He's seen it with his own eyes. But for some reason, he can't bring himself to bow the knee to the God of Israel. The demons believe and they shudder. Yeah, the demons believe and they shudder. He doesn't repent of his sin. He, he doesn't, don't you think the first, like if you were truly saved, what do you think would be coming out of, what do you think would be coming out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth? I repent in dust and ashes because I have been an arrogant, hateful, blasphemous man. Please forgive me, God, and I will do whatever I need to do to come before you and be humble before you. Do you see that coming out of his mouth? It's kind of like, oh, that was kind of a cool miracle. Don't mess with these guys. These guys have the mojo. That's kind of what he's saying. If you mess with them, I'm going to mess with you, but there's something kind of unique here. Don't diss that God. Yeah, don't diss that God. Now, Here's what the text doesn't tell us, and what I often wonder. Did he tear down that huge golden statue, or did it stand on the plain of Jordan for the rest of his reign as king? We don't know. True repentance would have been what? We're going to go tear that thing down right now. We're going to smash that idol down, and we're going to pulverize it. Remember what Moses did with the golden calf? What did God do with that? He made him pulverize it and then drink, <laughs> drink the, 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 gold, the, gold, the gold dust. So sometimes people can think they're right with God by doing little acts of kindness or doing good deeds to let God know they're okay. What is, what is, what's the little act of kindness that Nebuchadnezzar does? Don't mess with these guys. They're, they're, they're kind of protected because, you know, they, I, I kind of saw a cool miracle. They think they're good if they do... A little good, and God will let him off the hook. But what does God really require? Repentance. A turning away from sin and desperation that God has every right to destroy you, and the only way to escape his wrath is to come to Christ and plead for mercy. Now, there's a beautiful irony in this narrative. I'm not just going to stop right there. This is, this is where a Hebrew rabbi would stop, but this is not where we as Christians stop with the story. God did not abandon the three young men in the fiery furnace. God was with them and had the power to save them. Now let's think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus experienced the ultimate fiery furnace when he died on the cross and became a curse for us. Now, Jesus was alone on the cross, was he not? He experienced the full wrath of God. 
What did Jesus cry out when he was hanging on the cross? Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama, Thikbathani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, what's the irony? God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Jesus was alone on the cross. He experienced the fire of God's wrath alone. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And in 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on his tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been So Jesus was taking in his body on that cross, the, the fiery furnace of our sin. Our idolatry. Why? So that we would never have to endure the ultimate fires, fiery furnace of hell. Because have we not compromised? Have we not committed idolatries? <clears throat> Do we deserve anything? No. Now, at the beginning of this passage, in the beginning of this message tonight, I talked about the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of the king. Wrath, wrath, wrath. King Nebuchadnezzar had wrath. What was his wrath? It was out of control, wasn't it? It was petty, it was vindictive, it was blasphemous. So, let's talk about wrath for a moment. King Nebuchadnezzar's wrath was ungodly. But let's talk about God. What exactly is the wrath of God? J.I. Packer gives a very good definition in his book, Knowing God. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And I say this a lot because I think it needs to be clarified. There is a difference between rage and wrath. God never responds with rage. What's rage? King Nebuchadnezzar had rage. Rage is out of control, rage is petty, rage is vindictive, rage is capricious, rage is random. That's not what God does. God never does things like that. Wrath, on the other hand, is God is holy, and because there is sin, he righteously has to respond to sin with a righteous anger and punish it because he has to punish sin as a holy God. And so how did God punish sin? on Jesus. It's called propitiation. He executed his justice on Jesus. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Every single person is born with the wrath of God on them. Not a very popular statement to say out there. Hey, guess what? Joe Blow on the street. God's wrath remains on you. Okay, well, how do you get out from under God's wrath? What did Jesus say there? You believe in the Son to have eternal life. So, I've said this many times, but I want to say it again. God's wrath is poured out in one of two ways. It's not just believing, it's obeying. It's obeying, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, whoever does not, yeah, whoever does not believe in the Son 
whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And God's wrath is poured out in one of two ways. One, he poured it out entirely on his one and only Son, Jesus, who died in our place, so that when we trust Jesus, we can escape God's wrath and eternal hell, be loved and accepted by God, and live forever in heaven. That's, that's one way God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. The other way God's wrath is poured out is on those who don't bow their knee to King Jesus. They will suffer God's wrath in the fiery furnace that lasts forever in hell. So, which option would you choose? I would choose option number one. The wrath poured out on Jesus in your place. You trust him for eternal life. You're forgiven. Romans 3, 23-24 talks about this whole issue of propitiation, taking God's wrath. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, propitiation just means Jesus died in our place to take that righteous justice that God has to pour out on sin. Jesus took it for us so that we would never have to experience it. 1 John 4, 9-10, and this is love. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here's my question for you tonight or today. What will you do today? Let's bring this down to response time tonight. Will you be like King Nebuchadnezzar who had a shallow religious experience and gave lip service to God but would never bow himself in repentance and sooner enter his life to the true king? That's, that's one way you could approach this. Be like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to bow. I'm, I'm, I've seen some cool things. I've been about some religious things, but I've never repented and believed in the one true God, Jesus Christ. Or... Whoops, I guess the last blank is, will you confess with your mouth the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is my God. Jesus is my personal Lord. Thus ends Daniel chapter 3, and we've got about 10 minutes or so for questions. Any questions you guys have tonight? Do you feel like sometimes individuals who call themselves Christian and fall into ideology or especially with with like some forms of the cross and that kind of stuff do you think that sometimes gets slipped where they forget about the words and everything else but are more focused on the symbolism of it let me see if I understand your question without mentioning a belief system are you okay, okay. I'm, I'm ignoring you sir yeah you're, okay can, can we just be honest and can I can I can I just okay so I think you're talking about Roman Catholicism that would be okay, okay kind of okay so the question is can there be within a belief system that's very popular in America a worship of icons or crucifixes or saints or Mary and they're, they're, that's the focus as opposed to Christ and him crucified in a personal relationship with Jesus. The answer is yes. That there is in any, let's just put it this way, let's not pick on Roman Catholicism because we, we could easily do that. Any system that takes your eyes off of Jesus is idolatry. 
It can manifest itself in the worship of saints. It can manifest itself in the worship of Buddha. It can manifest itself in the worship of money. Anything that you elevate above Jesus and him personally as your Lord and Savior becomes an idol. Does that answer your question? Or? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's just sometimes those things are easy to see because they're tangible. And they're like icons or things that are easy to see. The idolatry that's hard to see is the, the stuff that's deep in our heart. Like you'd say, like, okay, let's think back, back to Isaiah. If you have an idol in your hand that you've whittled out of wood, that's pretty easy to see. Nobody's going to have an idol in their backyard. Nobody's going to go home tonight and bow down to an idol in your backyard, are you? Okay. But I guarantee you all of us have idols deep in our hearts or idols in our imagination, or idols of things that we've put above God that may not be a piece of wood, but it's something that we've elevated above God. And that would be an idol, whether it's a physical thing or it's anything. Yes, Dick? If you want to know what your idols are, take a look at what you have. What is the one thing that you have that you refuse to let go of? Yeah, here's... If God asked me today to give up something and I refuse to let go of it, that's an idol. Yep. Yeah, so you will know an idol by this. What is that one thing that gives you purpose, meaning, security, satisfaction, joy, happiness? You've put all your time, energy, and effort into that. If that thing was taken away from you, you would be stark, raven, mad, and insecure, and angry because it was taken away from you. That's an idol. That's basically what, what Dick is saying. Now, good things can become idols. Your family can be an idol if you're not careful. A job can become an idol. A sport can become... So, neutral... Value neutral things like a job, a sport, a career, those things aren't in themselves bad, but they can become idols when you obsess or put all of your, you, you put everything in them to be your be-all, end-all, be-all, satisfaction, purpose, meaning, and those become higher than, than Jesus. Yeah, yeah. A ministry in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, a ministry in the, yeah, any, yeah anything can be. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think you're doing it for Christ, but yeah. you're not. You're, yeah. you're putting, you're taking credit. Yeah. When it's Christ who is working in and through you to do that ministry, but if you're doing it in the flesh, yeah. it's an idol. Other questions? I have a question on the. I believe that it's the incarnate Christ, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, too. But you had mentioned the other belief that it could be an angel. What? Where do they get that angels have power to do what had happened there? Do you have any idea? The only thing they would probably say is that, um, like in the book of Daniel, you'll see later on, Michael the archangel doing battle, and so there are, there are powerful angels that have deliverance-type powers. Like with Gideon. Like with Gideon. Um, but even like, if you guys remember when Joshua, mm -hmm. and the guy with the sword, mm -hmm. I mean, my people believe that was a pre-incarnate Christ, too. Um, Balaam's donkey, the guy in the, with the sword, some people mm -hmm. believe that was a pre so, there are they're called Christophanies, um, the appearance of Christ in the in the um, so, and oftentimes it's called the angel of the Lord, um, 
so there's just sometimes when we deal with these Old Testament passages, it's not it doesn't explicitly say this is Jesus the Messiah. It is a a man, and we know angels can appear to look like men. But we also know Jesus was a a man. But then we also know that he wasn't really incarnate until he was born of a virgin. Right. And so then you kind of have to say, well, okay. You know, what is, what kind of work your theology out through this? Right. But um, I don't think you can be dogmatic on it because there's not enough. The, the main point, don't lose the force of the trees. God sovereignly provided for them in that moment with, within that way. Right. So, were you going to say something, Brent or Mike or something? Oh, I think it goes back even like uh, in the beginning of Genesis when God is walking with Adam and even in the cool of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, so that would be an example. I, I too kind of think that that was probably Christ in that fiery furnace. Yeah. Um, I think all martyrs experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit yeah. Yeah. Um, of one degree or another. Yeah. Um, unlike, I think, Jesus that probably never experienced that yeah. on the cross. Right. It's, right. I mean, totally, totally yeah. different. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Brent. I was going to say also the King James Version actually says the Son of God, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. Yep. We can't, I don't disagree that, I, I mean, I, I tend to believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ, but I don't want to be dogmatic on that because I think it's, it, there's not enough um, textual data there to be firm. Like you would, yeah. Cindy, were you going to say something? Yeah. Going off on a different bunny trail. Okay. We've got a five-minute bunny trail. <laughs> um, when it talks about, you know, when you talk about the wrath of God, and people don't like to talk about that because they think the rage of a king, right. or they think right. that thing. If God didn't have wrath against sin, he wouldn't be just. Right. And so, I mean, when you when you look at it that way, it's like everybody likes to talk love, and they like to talk warm fuzzies, but love means nothing right. if you don't have You've got to have that balance. So this is a debate. And I'll give you my opinion because me and one of the elders talked about this and we had a disagreement. It's okay for elders to disagree with. I personally don't know if wrath is a characteristic of God more so than, or like an attribute of God more so than an action. I think the attribute of God is he's just and he's holy. That's his attribute. But because of that attribute of holiness and righteousness, he has to act in wrath as an action that he pours out. But also the Bible says God's a jealous God. So let me give you an example. Let's say I'm going out to eat with Dawn. It's our 29th anniversary, which was this past June. And we're at this nice restaurant in Denver. And we're, you know, we're, we're having this beautiful time together. And um, the waiter comes up and uh, he slips Dawn a little note and says, hey, um, after you eat here, I'm in room 242. Why don't you come up and we'll have, you know. He starts hitting on my wife. Okay, now what am I going to do at that moment? As a husband, I will be jealous for my wife, and I will stand up and say, back off, dude. I've been married to her for 29 years. I have a right to protect her and be jealous and to show you a little bit of wrath. Okay, <laughs> to show, to, to, I'm not going to hurt you, but if it, but so I as a human husband would have a jealous anger and righteousness to protect my wife. How much more would God, who's holy, have a right to be jealous for his justice and his holiness and do whatever he needed to do to punish sin? And he did that through Jesus. That's a, human, that's, that's a human example 
imperfect to God who is holy. And so we must think that even when God executes his wrath, it is a holy wrath. It's never wrong or unjust or, or random. And it's done in love. All right. Well, you guys have about exhausted my brain. Is there like a couple of couple more questions or are you good to go? We went to the whole time tonight. That's that's the first. Usually we get done like 20 minutes early. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did experience the full justice of God on the cross in our place. And you died alone so that we would never be alone. You were forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. You experienced the fires of God's wrath so that we would never experience that. And so for that, Jesus, we are so thankful. And so help us to trust in you. Help us to be repentant. Help us to trust in your sovereignty. Lord, help us to be like these men, that we will be allegiant to you. Uh, we will be faithful to you. And that you'll give us the grace and strength to stand in a culture that, um, that opposes you, Lord. Give us courage and boldness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.